get our Bibles out. Uh, more good news. Tracy and John Holler have been working at uh, getting us back on Facebook, so that'll be available on YouTube, on Twitter. Uh, they're doing an amazing job with the technology that's available to us today. So those of you that are joining us online used to uh, be a part of, of uh, visiting with us on Facebook. Uh, we're there again. Come on down anytime at all, whether you're in Germany or Switzerland or Guam or any point in between. We have a glorious time of uh, the Lord in front of us. I'm going to take a hiatus from our study in the Gospel of Mark. Mark skips the entire birth narrative completely. And as I've been out and about, uh, as you have, there's a part of the world that is grieving my heart this time of year. It just seems to be so much commercialism, so much money, so much expectation, so much, oh, I, I got to buy this and I got to buy that. And yeah, even with ourselves sometimes, you're thinking, well, I don't need anything. I don't want anything, but, but my kids or my grandkids are going to buy it for me anyway. And so there are so many unwanted, unneeded presents out there, and we, we can get so caught up in that that we forget this is about Jesus. You know, the word Christmas itself, the celebration of Christ. It is, so I wanted to study uh, for the next, for this entire month, uh, the, the birth narrative as it comes to us in the Gospel of, of Luke. Um, a thousand years before Christ was born, King David's choir leader, by a guy by the name of Asaph, wrote in Psalm 77, 14, You are a God who performs miracles. That just touched my heart, and I fell across that in my quiet time reading uh, this week. You might say accidentally. I hadn't planned on it, but it brought to mind again that Christmas is supposed to be a reminder of the supernatural. There is nothing about the birth narrative that you can explain in natural terms. It defies physics. It defies biology, astronomy, and a thousand other disciplines all at the same time. It is a supernatural event. The problem is, is the church no longer thinks in supernatural terms. We think in natural terms. We tend to mimic the world when we see the world doing X or Y or Z. We think that that's popular and we've got to meet them where they're at, so we tend to compromise. We tend to see things through natural eyes instead of supernatural eyes. We do communion once a month in this church to get us back in touch with that supernatural to understand that Jesus' coming, His birth was supernatural. Everything about it was supernatural. He is a God who performs miracles. Think about the miracles He's done. The creation of the universe. Who else has done that lately? Any of the other gods of the world out there? Did Buddha do that? Did Muhammad do that? And, and I missed that in the Quran when I studied it when I was a young punk looking for meaning in life. He created the world and all that is in it, the creation of man. That's miraculous stuff. That's just miraculous stuff. You think then about Noah's flood, the supernatural plagues in the time of Moses that forced Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, the feeding and watering of two to two and a half million people in a desert wasteland for 40 years. That is as supernatural as it gets. Oh, miraculous. Parting of the Jordan River by Elijah and Elisha, the raising of the dead, the healing of leprosy, prophecy fulfilled, all of that is miraculous and supernatural. We must recapture that sense of the supernatural if we're going to talk about God. If we're going to look at the birth of Jesus Christ, we've got to forget the crowds at Walmart. We've got to forget about the budget and the annual budget for Christmas in America today is $942. I don't have $942 to spend on Christmas. I have nothing to give. What can I give God that would increase Him? What, what more do my children and my grandchildren need but the grace of God that's already been revealed? What can you give God? He gave us everything when He gave us Christ. And we've reduced the celebration of the festival to something about a guy in a red and white suit with furry collar and a reindeer and sleighs. And we're going, 
Where is any of that found in Scripture? It's not. But we buy into it because it's culture. It's, it's all around us. It's in the world. It's force-fed us. Have you noticed the world is trying to push Jesus out of his own birthday? That to me is an abomination. We cannot allow that to happen. You like your Christmas trees and celebrations and lights, and I do too. Love it all. But it must not replace Jesus. Let's recapture the holiday that's been taken from us. It's all about Jesus Christ and the miraculous, supernatural thing that God did in sending him. None of the miracles of the Old Testament, not a one of them compare in the least with the virgin birth of God's own son, Jesus Christ. God coming down in human flesh to become like you and I, to endure the mockery of men and the rejection of many to know human frailty and suffering and hunger and thirst and tiredness. And he lived perfectly before the law of God. He kept the law that condemned every one of us. He offered himself a living sacrifice so that you and I might be saved. That is all wrapped up in Christmas, no pun intended. His coming, miraculous beginning to end. Indeed, as Asaph said, you are a God who performs miracles. Do you believe that? I know you believe history, but do you believe that the God of the miraculous is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Do you believe that personally? Do you believe that God is able to do miracles for you? He has so many times in the past. Has He changed? He has not. The birth of Jesus Christ is what Christmas is all about, but the world has largely forgotten that fact. They don't want the accountability that comes with the knowledge that God entered the human race to save us from our sins. It's become a commercial enterprise anticipated to gross nearly a trillion dollars this year. A trillion dollars spent on commercial enterprise? You know what the second most well-spent holiday is on the entire calendar, Satan's holiday, Halloween. And we have come to expect all of that is normal. We shrug our shoulders and go, what's new? Everybody's been celebrating Halloween. There's nobody in the world that celebrates Halloween like we do here in America. So we ignore the Son of God on His birthday and embrace instead the festival of Satan's high, unholy day, and somehow or another, we think that's okay because the world is doing it. Amidst all of the commercialism, I thought it would be refreshing to, to bring Jesus back into the celebration of his own birthday. just seems reasonable. It would be beginning to end. The entire story of Jesus' life was miraculous. It's supernatural. But every story has a backstory. And ours begins this morning in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 and verse 5. If you would like to turn there this morning, I'd like to begin our celebration of this holiday Christmas season by remembering that holiday originally meant holy day. So when the world is out there saying happy holidays, they don't know that it's a holy day. So you re respond to them, Merry Christmas. Let's bring Christ back into it. As we look at the Gospel of Luke, many think that Luke was one of the 12 disciples. He was not. The 12 are listed for us in Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Luke 6. He's not named among any of them. He was a Gentile, and he was a physician by trade, according to Colossians 4.14. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. If you add that up, he wrote 28% of the New Testament. That is radical. He wrote it under the patronage of a Roman official named Theophilus. He may have gathered certain details such as facts on Jesus' birth and his youth. He may have gained that from Mary herself. I'm sure this physician thought, the virgin birth, there's never been a miracle like that. It is amazing, astounding. And from a physician's perspective, he writes this historical narrative for us. It's not only the longest of the four gospel accounts, it's also the longest book in terms of content in the entire New Testament. This guy is an exacting historian, and I just love it. Let's look at the text starting in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. 
His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. We're looking at a time period, 7 or 6 B.C. Herod is king. He is a non-Jew. He was uh, from Edom. He's an Idumean by birth, appointed as king by the Roman Senate, an office that he purchased. He was not the rightful king. Jesus was. He was the one known for beautifying the temple, did a magnificent job of it, started it in 20 B.C., and it was still going on at the time of his death. Here's Zechariah. Zechariah's name tells us the man's mission. God remembers. God remembers. God remembers you. God remembers all that you go through. God remembers you and thinks of you frequently. He loves you so very much. God remembers. He's a priest in the line of Aaron. Remember him, the brother of Moses? And the first high priest, all priests came, all high priests came from the line of Aaron. And he is of the division of Abijah. The, all of the priests were organized in the time of King David. It's all outlined for you in First Chronicles 23 and 24, if you're interested in, in such detail. I love the fact that verse 6 points out that both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Pray that you might be found in the Lord's eyes upright and blameless, uncompromised with this world around us that is doing everything within its power to push Jesus out of this holy day. Yet she was stigmatized in Jewish society because she was childless. That was considered a curse in Jewish times. You're cursed by God. You must not be blessed. We tend to think that same way today, don't we? Bad things happen to bad people. Well, how come bad things happen to good people sometimes? Only good things happen to good people. Really? I don't buy that for a second. And yet we stigmatize that, oh, you had this happen to you. You must be under God's judgment. You must have deserved it. You must have caught COVID because you were not blameless or upright. Or maybe it's just a pernicious virus that's out there. Huh? We live in, in a sinful, fallen world. She was barren. She had been barren for so many years, enduring this stigma from Jewish society. Why would God do that to someone who is upright and godly? God has a plan. God has a plan. Notice this. She doesn't know what it is. God allows things in your life that are supernatural, that defy explanation, and the flesh wants to rebel against that because it doesn't feel good. It doesn't give me what I want. God allows us to go through hardships or trials or tribulations. Why? God has a plan. Don't ask me to explain to you what the plan is. That's between you and Him, not you and me. But trust God. That's where faith comes into play. And can I tell you this? Habakkuk in the Old Testament said, the just shall live by faith, not by explanation. So understand the God you serve is supernatural, does supernatural things in your life that defy explanation. Don't try to explain them. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't try to go the way of the world and say, well, bad things only happen to bad people. Uh, not true at all. God has a plan, and His timing is impeccable, though we seldom agree with it. We want God to work on our behalf, and we want Him to do it when? Right now. That's why you hit the drive-up window at McDonald's, not because you want food next week. You want it right now. That's why you pray. You want God to do something for you right now. But sometimes his answer is yes, and sometimes it is no, and sometimes it is wait. It says in verse 8, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now, when the time for the burning of incense came, all of the assembled worshipers were praying outside. He is from the division 
of Abijah. His division is now called up for duty, and he was serving as priest before God because that's what he was supposed to do. For a thousand years, uh, the priests had been divided into 24 courses or divisions, and one of the priest's job, if he was chosen by lot, was to go into the temple and at the altar of incense simply offer up incense to the Lord. But understand what an unspeakable privilege this was. In the time of Christ, there were as many as 20,000 priests in temple service. So what's the chances you were going to be the guy who got to go offer the incense? That's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. If it ever came, some guys never got that, that shot. So they would choose by lot. Some priests would never get the opportunity to offer incense uh, because of the chance, if you will, of the casting of lots. The choice of Zechariah is supernatural, defying all odds, defying all expectations, without any natural explanation. Some of them would say, well, he had one in 20,000 chance. That's not good odds. That's not good odds. To a godly man like Zacharias, this was probably the biggest event of his whole life. What a tremendous privilege, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, literally. He must have wondered what it would be like to enter the holy place. I'll bet he was wondering, what do, I, what do I see when I get inside of there? Might God actually say something to me? Might I hear His voice or see the image of His presence or His glory? Maybe God wants to communicate to me. You see, to the Jewish mind, the offering of incense was a picture of the prayers of the people rising up before God. So one priest would go in flanked by a priest on either side, and they would go up to the temple, but only the priest chosen to offer the incense would go into the holy place and offer incense on that altar that had the live coals there. The other two guys waited outside. But as soon as they went inside, everybody, the hundreds, the thousands that had gathered were praying. They were praying, and this priest now was offering up their prayers to God in the form of incense. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. I, in my mind's eye, I see Zechariah asking the other priests, what's inside? Have you ever been in there? What, what did you see? Did, did, did God talk to you? Did he say anything to you? What was it like? Did you have a unique spiritual experience when you minister before the Lord? You can just sense in him the anticipation building. Wow. It's like the first time you ever get to preach in a church. I remember when I was on staff at Costa Mesa, uh, Chuck was out of the pulpit one Sunday and asked me to preach. The senior associate pastor, Romaine, came up to me uh, right before service, I mean, 30 seconds before the start of the morning service, and he says, Jim, I want you to remember a couple of things. And I said, yeah, what's that, Romaine? And he says, you're preaching before a live audience here in the church of 35,000 people. I said, Yeah. And he said, but there's a radio listening audience on over 100 stations of over a million people. So you'll be preaching this morning to 1,035,000 people. Don't screw up. His exact words, don't screw up. Now, now there's a real confidence builder. There, I mean, talk about a sense of anticipation. So I went out there thinking, just shaking in my boots. I thought I, thought I had the you know, the confidence of the Lord to do it. But after talking to Romaine, I came out and realized he does not have the gift of encouragement. Yeah, exhortation perhaps, but, you know, and, and I simply shared with, with the people what God had laid on my heart for the, those three morning services that Christ is all we need. He is sufficient to meet every need. And I spoke on your identity in Jesus Christ. You are not who you think you are. You're not the person that stares back at you in the mirror. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And we talked about that. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And we had just a tremendous time. But I had beforehand asked the other associate pastors, what's it like? Standing in front of so many people, is that, is that intimidating? Or I mean, you know what? <laughs> so much anticipation. But it says in, in verse 10, when the time came for the burning of incense, the assembled worshipers were, 
praying outside. Do you remember when David wrote in Psalm 141? He said, may my prayers be set before you like incense. May the lifting of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. So the offering of incense, perfect picture of prayer is that, that glorious aroma rose up before the Lord. At this particular moment, Zechariah is the focus of the whole nation. All of their prayers are tied up in this one man. It's on his shoulders. They would walk up, these other two priests did with him, and then he would go in and stand in the presence of God by himself all alone, knowing that when he came out, and, and, and he wouldn't have to stay in there very long, but you wonder, I wonder what he was praying about. He's supposed to be praying for the nation of Israel, but remember his wife is barren? He's endured that stigma a long time. Maybe he was, in addition to praying for the nation, maybe he was praying, Lord, would you comfort my wife, Elizabeth? She's never been able to have a child. Lord, would you just comfort her? Oh, I know we're way past the age of childbearing, Lord, but, but she's still grieving. Would, would you just bless her? Would you just come alongside of her? Would you reveal yourself to her? And as he's praying, as he's offering up this incense, there is a God, a supernatural God, who's listening to every utterance of his heart as well as his lips. I think the fervency of his prayer, he stayed in there apparently a good long time because the people were wondering, why, what's he in there so long for? What's going on inside? I wonder if he maybe dropped dead because he was in sin or something. You know, I mean, I mean, we all know bad things only happen to bad people. Uh-huh. But he thought carefully about what he was going to pray for before him. Maybe he even wrote it out. As you and I would write out a, a prayer list, more likely he memorized it, but uh, he also knew how long to pray. He knew the morning sacrifice was coming. There were a lot of people expecting his, his, his return. I'm sure he prayed for deliverance from the Romans because the Jews were under the heel of that empire. I, I'm sure he prayed for the Lord to send his Messiah with the hope of Israel. It was the hope of every man and woman and child in Israel. And in this once-in-a-lifetime encounter before God, I don't doubt at all that he prayed on everything that was in his heart. I got one opportunity to come into the presence of God, and he never would have gotten that opportunity again the rest of his life, statistically. What would you pray about if you only had one moment to come into the presence of God and pray? What would you pray about? Suppose you had 10 minutes and that's all you had, your whole life, to come into the presence of God. Your, your prayers would take on a whole new urgency at that point. Lord, help my wife. Come alongside her. Comfort her. Remove her reproach. Comfort her, Lord. I'm sure he had given up on kids a long time. Like verse 7 says, they were well advanced in years. Then something happens that is supernatural to an extent never seen before. The angel of the Lord, verse 11, then appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. The priest would come into the holy place, forbidden by anyone else to enter except for this time. And on the right side, there would have been this six-foot-tall menorah, this golden branch stand providing the only light in the place. Everything is overlaid with pure gold. The table of the showbread is over on this side, representing the 12 tribes of Israel in 12 unleavened loaves. And right in front of the curtain separating this compartment from the Holy of Holies, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet, there was this small table, inconspicuous. It was only 18 inches by 18 inches by, by uh, 36 inches tall. And there the live coals would be. And I'm sure as he's got his eyes closed, as he's sprinkling the incense on there, he opens his eyes and the first thing he sees is an angel. <laughs> That'd be an attention getter. And I'm, I'm sure, it, I am, I am sure it, it, it shook him. The angel simply stood on, on the right side of the altar of incense. I'm, I'm sure he had his eyes shut in passionate prayer. But when he opened them, he sees this angel and what the angel says is as miraculous as his appearance in the first place. The, verse 11, the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Why gripped with fear? 
Because contrary to diaper commercials that you see on TV, angels are not babies with cute wings and diapers. That's not an angel. I'm sorry. That may be what the world thinks of or some delicate little feminine thing with flowing robes that are flowing here and flowing there. That's not an angel. Think of, think of a 10-foot tall Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. That's an angel. They are big, they are huge, they are imposing, they are powerful, they reflect the glory of God, and you stand there speechless and your breath taken away. This isn't the time to be flippant because these aren't flippant creatures. They stand in the presence of God Almighty, and it is an awesome thing. And so the, typically, angels have to say this first thing, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because fear is a natural response when you see some guy with a huge sword at his side, gigantic wings, huge, muscular, powerful, incredible, and glowing with the presence of God. First thing they have to say is don't pass out. It's okay. You won't die. The angel said. (laughs) The angel then speaks to him. Talk about an unspeakable privilege. This This is it for sure. Verse 12, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled, gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Why? Zechariah's name means what? God remembers. That's why we pray. God remembers. He remembers you, your limitations, your frailty, your lack of wisdom and understanding as to why things happen the way they do in this world. God remembers you. He never forgets you. He never gives up on you. He never throws in the towel. God remembers. He knows your hardship. He knows the aches and pains of your heart. Your prayer has been heard. Your prayers are heard every bit as much. This is not some little delicate woman, a cute naked baby with wings. Uh, He's glorious. He's fearful. He's awesome. Like most angels in the Bible, the first thing he's got to say is, don't be afraid. And Zechariah must have thought to himself, does this happen to everybody who comes in here? The guys never told me about this. Is this this normal? Uh, They they didn't say anything about this at all. And This is kind of a biggie that they forgot to tell me. He didn't realize how he was called to a unique life, a unique ministry, and his whole life up to this point was preparation for what the Lord was about to do. Verse 13, the angel said to him, don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. I'm sure that they had been praying about a kid for years, especially a son. Can I tell you, God always answers our prayers, but it's always in his time. It's always in his way. But keep on praying. Don't grow weary in prayer. God has his reasons, his purposes. And the boy is to be named John, which means Yahweh is gracious. God is gracious. He loves you so much. Sometimes we pray for something for a long, long, long time. We pray for the salvation of a loved one or a family member. We pray for a spouse. We pray for a calling. We pray for a job. We pray for so many things. We pray that God would bless us in specific ways. And after years of heartfelt prayer... A lot of people simply give up because of discouragement. Oh, I stopped praying for my spouse a long time ago because they're never going to change. I I stopped praying for God to do a miracle. I stopped praying for a child. Uh, I'm sure that Zechariah and Elizabeth had probably prayed for years passionately for a son, but they'd given up a long time ago and stopped believing God for so much anymore. They settled for the natural instead of the supernatural. They failed to remember. God remembered them, but they failed to remember that the God they served was a God of the supernatural, not things you could explain or understand. Where, when we're in that place, we, we, we sometimes in the smallest of ways begin to doubt the love and care of God. Does He really hear my prayers? Does He really care? Is He ever going to answer? Faith says yes to all of those questions. God always loves. His care never stops. 
Maybe Zechariah was thinking, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't pray for a son. I mean, we're old. We stopped praying for that years, years ago. I'm, I'm praying for the salvation of Israel. I'm praying that God will send the promised Messiah. <laughs> Zechariah didn't know that God was going to answer both prayers at once and use his miracle baby to be part of the sending of the Messiah. He doesn't understand any of that at this point. You take your faith in baby steps. Just take your walk with the Lord today. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Didn't Jesus say, don't worry about tomorrow. Give no thought for tomorrow. That's all we do. That's all we do. We know it is in direct contradiction to the command of Jesus Christ, but we worry about tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And, the, and the five, we want a five-year plan. Well, God doesn't work that way. Zechariah had no idea that God would be answering the greatest desire of his heart and the sending of the Messiah all, all in the same prayer. He'd, he'd probably completely given up on the idea of being a dad. It was hope that was crushed over years of disappointment. And that's what Satan does to you and me. He crushes you through disappointment, through years of unanswered prayer. He wants us to forget God like the world already has. Do you understand that? The world that we live in today has forgotten God. 20 years ago, 97% of America claimed to believe in God. It is now today, 81%, at the lowest point in the history of the Gallup Poll Organization polling. How many people? It is at the lowest point in the history of the United States of America. This nation has gotten away from God. Can I tell you, as a nation, we reap what we sow. It, it gives me no joy to think of that at all. But you wonder about the inflation. You wonder about the economy. You wonder about the global geopolitical situation. Who do we have to blame but ourselves? Are, have we become the lukewarm church at Laodicea? Or does the fire of God still burn in you? Or are you obsessed with things of the world, the entertainments of the world, the pleasures of the world, the hobbies of the world, the sports of the world? What, are, what, what ignites that passion within you? I hope it's your love for Jesus Christ. They may have given up on God, but God never gave up on them. You're going to name him John. The, the boy's given a, a name in verse 13, even before he's conceived. Verse 14, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. That's the sight of the Lord, not the sight of the world. The world would look at him and go, he lives in the desert. Camels scratch their backs up against the, pack, the cactus, and he pulls the hair off and, and weaves it into some burlap kind of garment that he wears. He's got bugs teeth between his, bugs legs between his teeth. He eats grasshoppers and wild honey, and he hasn't had a haircut in who knows how long. Not the man you expect to find in the wilderness proclaiming, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And yet that, he was rejected by and large by the world. He wasn't handsome. He wasn't good looking. He wasn't tall. He didn't smell good. He wasn't on TV commercials. All of the things that the world admires today. Oh, he's got to be under 30. Got to have a full head of hair. That's important, you know. Really? Why are we so carnal that we vote those kind of people into political office on the basis of their looks or their hairstyle or the clothes that they wear? As if that has anything to do with anything. We, we can be so superficial at times if we let the world get inside of us to any significant degree. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. I'm going to let you in on a little Christmas secret. You are great in the sight of the Lord. Not in the sight of the world. Don't even look for that acclaim. But you are great in the sight of the Lord. You're a child of the King. You're the Son of God's own choosing. You're, you're a royal priesthood, a chosen people, Peter reminds us. There is a requirement upon him in verse 15. John is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. That is essential. He'll be great in the eyes of the Lord, not the world's eyes. Great people of the Lord are seldom recognized 
or perceived as great in the eyes of the world. This is probably a reference to the Nazarite vow found in number six. You, do, you drink no wine, you drink no grape juice, you can't even have raisins. For the duration of the Nazarite vow, you couldn't cut your hair either, but he's a lifelong Nazarite. The boy's never had a haircut. He's the original hippie. And he's disdained by the establishment, just like the hippies of the 60s were. But here's the difference. It says in verse 15, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from the womb. Can I tell you, that's his primary qualification for the ministry, not the clothes he wore or the diet that he had or the austere lifestyle that he led. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. What qualifies you to be used of the Lord is the filling of His Holy Spirit. Didn't Jesus say, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. You can't be in a praise band without a fire for Jesus. You can't preach in the pulpit without a fire from Jesus. You can't teach Sunday school unless you've got a passion and are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He is the only one that qualifies any of us for ministry because apart from Him, we can do nothing. And yet there is so much church that goes on today that the Holy Spirit's not a part of it all. We ape the world we don't need God. We can get on radio and promote ourselves. We can get on TV and push, push, push. We got plans. We got programs. We got lasers and smoke pots and elevating platforms where the pastor comes out of the ground amidst all of the lasers and the glory. And you're going, that's what the world does. Got to have LEDs shining on them. And, oh, we compete with the world as if we ever could. And the heart of God must be, uh, you know, grieved when he says, you think you can do things apart from me? Nothing of spiritual value. All you can do is provide carnal entertainment. And that's what the world chases after today. Carnal entertainment. Woe unto the Christian that does. We've bought into the mindset that bigger is better and fancier and glitzier. Churches with huge budgets are most enamored by Christians today. Oh, we should be more like that church or this church. Maybe we should be more like John the Baptist. Maybe we should ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Maybe we should look for opportunities to do the supernatural, as this whole book is, is all about. That's our qualification for the ministry. He is still the necessity and the only legitimate equipping for the ministry. Without Him, we only have the appearance of ministry. Lots of churches have forsaken Jesus. Lots of churches leave him out of the only holiday that celebrates his birth. It says in verse 16, many of the people of Israel, he will bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. He is not Elijah come back to life, but he's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, who had one message, by the way. Elijah's message was simple, repent. John the Baptist's first message that we read about in Scripture was what? Repent. Jesus, when he shows up on the scene as an adult, his first message is what? Repent. And nobody wants to do that today because that requires humility. That requires confession of sin. That requires submission. It may even require me giving up something carnal that's holding me back as a Christian. A lot of people want a little Jesus. They want their fire insurance. They just don't want his lordship. So the church in many places of the world today is impotent because it's settled for too little when God has so much for us. Elijah was a man who called Israel to radical repentance. You read about him in 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, uh, and it is an amazing spirit that was upon him, to be sure. Malachi 4 said that John the Baptist would be coming. He, he said in the last book of the Old Testament, Behold, I send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Did you hear what God said through his servant Malachi? If a nation turns its back on me, I will turn my back on that nation. That's sobering. 
But you and I can reverse the trend of society by simply supernaturally inserting Jesus back into the national conversation. Let's pray for revival in the United States of America. Let's pray for our president and vice president and Congress on, on, on all levels. Luke quotes Malachi, and it's far more than just a reference to Elijah. It's the last words of the Old Testament, and the people of Israel wouldn't hear from God again for 400 years. From the time of Malachi, written about 440 B.C., to the time of Christ, the world was out without a supernatural revelation from God. The Jewish people hungered for the coming of the Messiah, but had basically given up, just like Zechariah and his wife had on ever having a child. Satan wants to discourage you. His most well-worn weapon is discouragement. If you didn't know that already, he will try to discourage you to the point that you, you throw in the towel. We have to cling, absolutely cling to the Lord these last days as the love of many waxes cold. Don't let it happen to you. Don't let it happen to you. You and I are called to be planet changers, world shakers, and accomplishing that through the supernatural empowering of God's Holy Spirit. That's what prayer is about. Prayer puts you in that place, that holy place, where your prayers go up before the Lord like incense, and angels show up, and miracles happen, and tremendous things supernaturally are accomplished. His whole goal was to make a people, verse 17, prepared for the Lord. It was true of John. It's true of Christians today. That is what we are to be about Verse 18, it says that Zechariah asked the angel, well, how can I be sure of this? I mean, you know, dude, I'm old. You know, we celebrated my 85th birthday last week, and, you know, the chances of having kids, yeah, that's nothing. Uh, you know, I'd, thanks for the promise, Mr. Angel, but considering the, the condition of my wife and myself, that's a bit of a stretch you're asking me to believe. My wife and myself, we're... Well along in years. Maybe, maybe you could give me a sign to prove it. Maybe you could give me, didn't Jesus say a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign? You don't do that because doing that is the opposite of exercising faith. Well, Lord, I can believe your promises if, if you send an angel or if something happens or if I win the lottery, then, then I'll really believe. Hmm. Can you give us a sign to prove it? A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, Matthew 12, 39 tells us. And look at Gabriel's response in verse 18, or excuse me, verse 19. The angel answered, and there is thunder behind this voice. Reading it in the original is one of those things where you say, did I just feel an earthquake? Did I just hear the clash of thunder? Did the angel answered, I am Gabriel. Mighty man of God is what his name means. He's one of the mighty angels of God. He's not just old namby-pamby angel. This is, he is Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words. Just underline that. You did not believe. That's a serious thing when an angel's talking to you. You go, well, I don't know if I can take your word for it, Gabriel. I mean, what? What is wrong with you? This is Gabriel you're talking about. You did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. God still has a plan, despite the lack of faith that's being demonstrated in this moment. But can I tell you this? If there's one thing you want to learn from that little brief paragraph, don't doubt the word of Gabriel. Don't try to make sense of it. Don't try to think through it naturally. Well, I, don't, I can't rationalize how this can happen. From a medical standpoint, it seems to be beyond belief. That's thinking in the natural, which is the tendency of the church today. Well, I don't see how that could happen. I don't see how God can intervene. I, I, I've heard about other people experiencing miracles, but I, I kinda, I've never experienced one myself. Where's your faith? Where's your faith? He's the same yesterday and today forever, just as able to do miracles now as ever. But we kind of don't believe that because we personally haven't experienced it 
because of our lack of faith. We don't question Gabriel, we question God. Can God really do this? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 comes into play here. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean upon your own understanding. But that's always our default position. wonder what God's doing. It's commanded for us, do not lean upon your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him. He will direct your paths. It didn't say question Him. It said trust in Him. Exercise your faith. Cling to Him. He will direct your paths. What's the opposite of faith? Doubt. Unbelief. You doubt the word of Gabriel? Zechariah is thinking in his natural mind, this is impossible. And he's right. Stop thinking in the natural. This is a supernatural event that's being recorded for us by the physician, Luke. He can't explain it in naturalistic terms. He's not saying, oh, yeah, the medical literature is clear. You know, 85-year-old women have babies all the time. He knows it's impossible from a natural standpoint. The mistake you and I make is we tend to think in the natural. We forget that we serve a God of the supernatural. He's thinking, that's impossible, yes, but doesn't the Word of God say, with God all things are possible? Can I tell you, God actually expects us to believe that, then not just give lip service to the text. It's not that, Je that Zechariah doesn't want to believe this, he does. It's simply that he feels it's too good to be true. They've been praying for so long, and he's probably protected himself from disappointment by hardening, hardening his heart and lowering his expectations. Many of you have. You know that God loves you. You love God. But you've just kind of given up on so many things. You've given up on the fire of God that can change the human soul. You've given up on God ever using you to some magnificent uh, thing or another of his, of his calling. And we tend to protect ourselves from disappointment because we've set our expectations too high. We rob ourselves of many a miracle by the same attitude that Zechariah has here. Here's the problem. Zechariah looked at the circumstances and not the Lord. He looked at what God could do last. He looked with his natural eyes, well, this is impossible. That's true, but with God, all things are possible. We're tempted to think that what we see is reality. And yet, Paul tells us exactly the opposite. The things that are most real in the economy of God are the things that you and I cannot see cannot explain, cannot understand. And the tone of the angel is one of rebuke. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And because you have not believed, you know what, you reap what you sow here. You're going to be silent until and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe. The word believe and the word faith is the same root word in the original Greek. Faith is the noun, believe is the verb, but they are exactly the same root word in the Greek language. So when God asks you and I to believe Him and His word and His promises, He's asking you and I to exercise our faith. Same word, exactly. You say you believe in God, do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that He answers prayer? Do you believe that He can do the miraculous in, on, and through you? Or are you like Zechariah, just given up, written it off? God can't possibly use me. Verse 21, before I leave that, I'm reminded in Hebrews 11:6 that says, without faith it's impossible to believe, to please God. Without faith, without believing, it is impossible to please God. Exercise your faith. Trust in His promises. Cling to the God who is the God of the supernatural. Verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. I wonder if he croaked. Maybe he went in there like, like Aaron's sons, you know, Abihu and, and the other guy, and died because they went in there drunk and flippant. Verse 22, but when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After 
this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Oh, what a precious fulfillment of the promise. And for all five months, of course, Zechariah can't utter a word, realizing I kind of did that to myself because I didn't believe. Now his wife is probably saying, praise God, you can't say a word. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing, honey. Priests have a habit of talking too much sometimes. Verse 25, the Lord has done this for me. She said, in these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. She's got a baby now, and it is a supernatural thing. He couldn't speak at all as he came out. Another six months, another slug full of priests would come in and take their place. But I, I got to tell you, in this backstory to the birth of Jesus Christ, everything about this is supernatural, front to back, and it's written by the most pragmatic writer of the New Testament, Luke, a physician. You know doctors, they, they can be cold-blooded. Man, they sometimes lack compassion, have zero bed manner. Yep, sorry, you're going to die of cancer. Well, what's the good news? Well, you're going to die of cancer. And you say, you got the gift of encouragement. Thanks a lot. Well, what's the worst that can happen? Well, this can happen to you. This can happen. Yeah, they give you 10,000 side effects. It's like watching those commercials on TV. Here, take this drug. It's new and it's wonderful. But the side effects include death, vomiting, nausea, diarrhea for the rest of your life. And they go down this lid and you go, that's worse than the disease I've got. Why in the world would I want to take that? So Luke, understand this, is a pragmatist. He's that kind of cold-nosed medical professional who says, guess what? This is all supernatural. As a physician, I can't explain any of this in, in natural terms. Every single aspect of the first Christmas, the birth of Christ and his forerunner, John the Baptist, was supernatural. It's unexplainable in the natural, but that's always the first thing you and I try to do. We try to explain it in terms of our personal experience or in terms of the natural. And we have failed to realize God works supernaturally in, on, and through His people. Everything God has ever done is supernatural. It defies a natural explanation. Indeed, we went over it before in Psalm 77, verse 14. Indeed, our God is a God who performs miracles. He always has. He always will. But it requires faith to see things from God's perspective without demanding an explanation from him or his angels. Well, why are you doing this to me, O oh God? Have you noticed he never answers that question? Never. Because it's one that's born of blasphemy. It's one born of, of no faith. It's, it's born of questioning and demanding an answer for the holy God who created the entire universe and this world and all that's in it and on it. Who is he that we should demand an explanation from him? No, faith says, I don't need an explanation. I trust the man because I know his character. He is God. He loves me. He's going to come through. I don't need an explanation. Don't ask God why. Ask instead, what can I learn? What is it that I am supposed to learn through this situation, this trial, this, this inconvenience? He is the God of miracles. I want His perspective on these things. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The Jews hadn't heard from God in 440 years, but when God was ready, He would speak again. In fact, doesn't Hebrews... Uh, tell us this in, in the opening verses. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom He made the universe. So God has revealed Himself to you and I. And you say, well, I've never seen an angel. Who wants to see an angel when someday you're going to see Jesus Christ face to face? No angel can take his place. I'm not looking forward to, to seeing angels so much as I am my Lord and Savior. How you respond to the good news really believe, stands on how much you believe. Do you believe in the supernatural? Do you believe God? Do you believe his promises? Do you claim them as your own? Do you believe that God can do anything if, if we seek him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength? That's where the church fails today. You may be failing in this area. 
Do you, are you seeking God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength? Because Jesus said, that's what the Father's looking for. Not half-hearted worshipers, lukewarm people, or people consumed with commercialism. Or do we need an angel to come and rebuke us, reminding us all things are possible with God? Don't make Zechariah's mistake in thinking only in terms of the natural, because Christmas is supernatural. It's a supernatural holy day, celebrating a supernatural, it's a miraculous birth. The God we serve is, is a supernatural God. He calls us to a supernatural faith in Himself. Life is more than what you see with your eyes or rationalize in your mind or perceive with your conscience. Life is so much more than that. These last days, the church is going to have to think outside the box. Think in terms of the supernatural. God, I want more. God, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Hunger and thirst for God. Those people wind up seeing God seeing Him work in, on, and through them. Believe a supernatural God for supernatural things. Don't limit God. Die to your obsessions with the things of the world. They don't mean anything anymore. Die to the designer labels and the name brands and the wealth and whatever else the world is chasing after these days. I don't want to think or act naturally. I want to believe and act on my faith in Christ Jesus. So let's keep Christmas centered on Christ this year. When you go into Walmart, pray for those people that don't know Jesus. Pray for an opportunity to share your faith and tell them what Christmas is all about. It's not happy holidays. There's only one holiday, and it's Christmas. It's only one holy day in the month of December, and it is the birth of Christ. So when people say happy holidays, you tell them, Merry Christmas. It's all about Christ. And smile at them. Because it's a miraculous and, and supernatural event. We will look at it that way. We will believe God and His promises. <sighs> so, what do you want God to do for you? Oh, I want an angel to show up. You sure? Maybe the 10-foot Gabriel who looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger is prime would rebuke you. You did not believe me. You did not believe him. Maybe you don't want an angel to show up. Maybe you want to just give your life afresh to the Savior and shepherd of your soul. Maybe you just want to rest in him and take a break from all of the commercialism that has absolutely convinced the world of its ways. Maybe this holiday season, the best thing we can do for each other is to love God and love each other. Didn't Jesus say that was the greatest of the commandments? He didn't say value it by the presents you receive or give or how much money you spend. I'd encourage you don't spend any money this year. I'd encourage you to give a present to the supernatural God who supernaturally sent His Son. Give your heart to Him afresh. And ask Him to remove from your heart the things of this world that are of no eternal consequence. Ask Him to give you fresh hope, a fresh vision. That's really what Zechariah needed. He'd given up hope. He settled for the status quo. The church today is settled for that. Uh, yeah, I read about miracles. I don't, I don't believe them. Not for me anyway. Maybe for somebody else. This book was, is God's letter to you. All of these promises, they're for you. They're not for your next-door neighbor. They're for you. And you, the Lord is calling us to reanalyze why we do Christmas the way we do. What do we really believe about Christmas? It was the night before Christmas and all through the house. Really? No, that's not, about, that's not what the season is about. As much as I love my trees and the lights, they remind me of He who came as the light of the world, Jesus Christ. The evergreen reminds me of the eternal life that He died to give me. That's what Christmas is all about. It anticipates the cross, the giving of God's greatest present to you and I, salvation. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's a free gift of God offered to you. So Christmas presents, God's already given the best. 
You want to give presents to each other? Remind them, remind your, your loved ones and your children. God gave us the best present of all when He gave us Jesus Christ. We're going to keep them central in the holiday. Maybe you want a Christmas morning share these opening verses and chapters out of the Gospel of Luke to tell your kids and remind them it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He loves you so much. You know that? He loves you so much. So your mission, whether it takes place at Walmart or not, is tell people this season about the love of Christ. That's why He came, to show us the invisible God. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You've seen the Father. This is how, what He looks like. This is how He acts. This is how He thinks. This is what's important to Him. So this season, get in touch with Jesus, please. Whatever else you do or don't do, get in touch with Jesus this Christmas season. Can we stand and close in prayer?